Welcome to the Asking for Myself podcast with Dr. Crystal Benjamin. Now, you've probably seen the asking for a friend phrase, and that phrase usually would be shown after a sarcastic or an embarrassing comment. Well, in this space, for this podcast, there are no embarrassing questions. So you get to ask those candid questions about life and relationships. Hi, beautiful people. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Asking for Myself with Dr. Crystal Benjamin. So today I get to interview Dr. Carice Kalenda, and I'm so excited to interview her. She's a personal friend of mine, and we've been in contact since, I think, undergrad, really. Um, it, it's so interesting. We weren't in the same classes, but we somehow found each other. And I'm really excited about that. So she is an assistant professor, a licensed professional counselor, a substance abuse counselor. And as a clinician, Dr. Kalinda has worked with adolescents, adults, and families in inpatient and, sorry, outpatient and residential dual diagnosis settings. Um, she also provide, provided crisis counseling to individuals who experienced sexual violence. She has specialized training in the assessment and treatment of trauma and substance use disorders and the use of cognitive and behavioral interventions. Her research interests include sexual viol- violence, substance use, mindfulness, and single case research designs. Oh my goodness. So exciting. So happy to have you here, Dr. Kalina. How are you doing this afternoon? I am doing great. We have nice weather today, so it's a, it's a good day. <laughs> oh, yes, because you're in Wisconsin, right? Yes. And the weather has been like, what's the lowest it went to this year, this season? Oh, um, minus 55 degrees. Wow. I can't <laughs> imagine what <laughs> I can't even imagine. So those of you who yeah. know what I feel like, I feel it for you. <laughs> like I, 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 I feel really, I wish I could warm you up with some Caribbean heat. <laughs> that must be tough. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. So we have you here to talk about addiction. Mm-hmm. One of my, one of the persons who I have on my Instagram, they asked, Hey, I would like to learn more about addiction. And so I said, who better person to ask than you, actually? You're the first person mm-hmm. that came to mind. Okay. So what is addiction, Dr. Cullen? Sure. So um, when we think about an addiction, we think about a condition where an individual is unable to control their use, even though they've had harmful consequences. Um, so it's like, no matter what consequences I have, I'm still going to continue this behavior. Um, so in the case, for example, of like substance use or alcohol use, I mean, individuals could get quite sick if they abruptly stop using and in some cases could die from withdrawal symptoms. And so, uh, withdrawal is also another, um, sign or kind of, um, hint that you might be experiencing an addiction to a substance or another behavior and so yeah that just hit me because i think Mm -hmm. i know about the withdrawal piece in terms Mm -hmm. of 
you have an addiction, you would usually have withdrawal if you try to stop abruptly. Right. But that piece of doing it and continuing mm-hmm. despite the full consequences of the behavior, right. just continuing it. That's like wow. Yeah, exactly. And when we think about withdrawal, so for example, some withdrawal symptoms that persons might experience might be cold sweats, they might have diarrhea, vomiting, they may feel very nauseous. Some people have seizures, hallucinations, whether that be auditory or visual hallucinations. Um, This really tight feeling in your chest, muscle tension, they may get really bad headaches, um, shakes, um, difficulty breathing heart palpitations, you might almost feel like you're going to have like a heart attack um, and restless leg syndrome. Um, And I have, for example, you know, when we talk about the harmful consequences, but still continuing your use, I've had a lot of clients who, for example, um, prolonged alcohol use causes um, cirrhosis of their liver and it is a very painful um, medical condition. And drinking more alcohol just adds to that pain. And I've had clients before who've been diagnosed with cirrhosis of their liver, been given medical direction to stop using alcohol, but their need to use overpasses that physical pain that they experience. Wow. Mm -hmm. The need to use Mm -hmm. is way, it outweighs that pain that they're experiencing. Wow. Right. that's something else. So what are some of the things? So we kind of talked about alcohol and mm-hmm. drugs to some extent, but you know, some people throw out their social media, people being addicted right. to that. What are some of the things that people can get addicted to? Yeah. So one thing that um, is good to, to kind of clarify is that addiction, um, for want of a better phrase, is somewhat like an umbrella term because okay. You could have an addiction to a substance. So, you know, common things like heroin, cocaine, marijuana, alcohol. Um, You could also develop an addiction to prescribed medication. Um, And then there are also what we call process addictions. And those things are like, for example, when you talk about social media, Um, you talk about internet addiction, there's pathological gambling, sex addiction, compulsive spending or online shopping, disordered eating, exercise addiction, work addiction. Um, so pretty much you, you could probably develop an addiction to almost anything. It really goes back to that definition of addiction. And I want to just kind of talk a little bit about the characteristics of addiction yes. so that this makes more sense when we talk about these process addictions as well. Because I think it's easy for us to understand um, or easier maybe to understand how someone you know, could be using alcohol or drugs but sometimes it's a little more difficult to understand these other processes. So like, like sex, gambling, um, internet and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So there are some uh, key characteristics of addiction and these are reflected in the clinician's Bible or the diagnostic and statistical manual um, <laughs> or commonly known as the DSM. <laughs> and these are also characteristics outlined by the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Um, so one, the inability to abstain. 
So the, ability, the inability to avoid or stay away from that substance or these behaviors. It's like these things, are, your world revolves around these things. So you, you have a hard time staying away from them. Being impulsive um, and so impaired behavior control. So you're unable to control behaviors that lead to substance use or other addictive behaviors. Um, and, and these behaviors are usually very impulsive. It's like you act and then you think. Then another key thing is craving. So this is an intense desire for this reward that you get from using this substance or these other process addictions. Um, it's, it's, so for these substances, it's really uh, like a physiological thing, right? Of craving this, it's like this, you, you know, I don't know about, about your listeners, but I have a sweet tooth. So yeah, <laughs> I know yeah. how I feel when I really want like a piece of chocolate. Or I really yeah. want something sweet. It's like you <laughs> do whatever is necessary so that I could get it, so I could satisfy this need, this, this want, this desire for it. Um, I know about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing is the inability to recognize problems in life, which I think... Um, is, is really a challenge, right? Not that the other things aren't challenges, but for example, um, you know, these addictive behaviors may be causing interpersonal conflict, like within your families, with your partner, with your children. You're doing these, you're spending more time seeking out or doing these behaviors or using these substances than you would spend with your family, um, than going to work, um, so it, it gets in the way of those relationships. You may be having legal consequences and still you're not able to put the pieces together to say, okay, so this is happening. I'm doing this. These are my consequences. I think something might be wrong. Um, some people lose their homes, they lose their jobs. And we talked about like health conditions that could be associated with substance use. Um, and then there's emotion dysregulation. So it's the inability to manage the, a healthy emotional response. So you're more likely to see individuals who would be aggressive, um, maybe engaging in violent acts of intense shift in moods. So those are some of the characteristics of um, an addiction. And so someone who ha is experiencing a like one of these process addictions, so for example, um, you brought up social media, so we could just use that because that's something that everybody is familiar with or most people. Right. Um, if you can't, fun you, ha you get up on morning and the first thing you can think about is social media. You're on it, you don't shower, you don't eat breakfast because you're on social media. You're late for work because you're on social media. You forget to pick up your children from school because right. you're on social media. Yeah, it, it totally like takes over your world. And then when you don't have access to it, you become very anxious, you become really irritable, you're agitated, and you, it's like you lose your senses, right? Because you can't get this thing that you need. Yeah, I'm hearing that definitely. I'm hearing it as as though it's this is this thing that mm -hmm. just full it fills up space. It fills right. up space and it takes over. And it sounds like with an addiction, one of the one a great way to identify that is when you 
it's like your world is crumbling down and you're mm-hmm. still running behind that. And while you're talking, mm-hmm. the thing that comes to my mind is some of us in relationships. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we just, you know, continue down that line, even though it not, might not be, might not be in our best interest. Right. Um, and so, wow, it's, I'm actually just sitting there and, and the wealth of knowledge being shared is just like, oh my goodness, this is something else. Yeah. And so it, it has me thinking, mm-hmm. why are some people more likely to become addicted and, and others aren't? Yeah. Is there something like the addictive personality, quote unquote, sure. are more inclined to... Mm-hmm addiction or or what is that yeah so there's no one answer to that question um because there are several different um reasons or or hypotheses about why a person might uh lean towards more addictive behaviors than others um so one thing we could think about right away is coping skills um some of us are able to cope with situations or problems in a healthier way than others um so for example, if, um, if, if you and I both had the experience of being in a um, really bad car accident, um, you might decide to, um, you know, you, you seek medical help and then you go, you might decide to go talk to your, your pastor at your church or, um, you know, another elder in your community or talk with a counselor to talk about how you feel, right? You might be really scared. You might not want to drive anymore. So you go talk to someone um, and then you start making changes to your behaviors as it relates to like your safety. So you're more vigilant when you drive. Um, maybe you might ask someone to accompany you um, you know, in your next, next few days while you drive so that you start feeling more comfortable again. And by reaching out to these people and getting this support, you actually could like flourish, right? Because, right. So it doesn't mean that because you've had this experience, you would just be a complete wreck for the rest of your life. So that's based on those behaviors, those decisions that you make. So let's say I didn't do that. Um, I might, on the other hand, isolate, I avoid people, I avoid going out into public spaces, I avoid getting into cars, um, I don't reach out for help, I don't ask people to, um, you know, give me what I need. And so because of that, I might start getting really anxious at home, I might start feeling symptoms of depression, and I might decide to drink so that I could numb how I feel. Um, and that's how I will cope with the accident. Whereas you were able to do, take a completely different path. And this sometimes, um, kind of speaks to, I mean, it's, it's not, um, it's not about addiction, but it's, it's kind of related where people could experience post-traumatic stress disorder, um, from, you know, like traumatic experiences or they experience post-traumatic growth. Um, which would have been what you would do, what you would have done in the situation of the car accident, as opposed to what I might have done, you know, the isolation, the drinking, I might be able to sleep, right. I might become you know, really distressed and possibly have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder from this. Um, so, so again, so coping skills, right? Um, then, coping mm-hmm. skills, right? I mm-hmm. noticed that and I'm not sure if it was just for the purpose of the example, but I noticed mm-hmm. that the coping skill that allowed for growth mm-hmm. was external. So it involved accessing help. Right. There's the coping style that didn't 
work at that time in the example was keeping people away is that there any significance in that at all in terms of when something difficult yeah. comes up and and the, the better way to do with it might be to access help is, is right. there any significance or was it just the example yeah so some people also might um in addition to reaching out you know externally for help they might tell themselves you know this, this accident isn't going to define who I am. I'm not going to stay at home just because this happened. I still have a life. I have to get to my job. I have activities in my community I still want to go to. So I'm not going to allow this accident to take me over. So let me see who I could go to. So it's kind of a combination of both, that internal and external drive. Um, Whereas, you know, the person who just, you know, tries to like deal with this internally, they really withdraw, they may not be seeking out that external help or the ex their environment and these external factors might just be reinforcing their fears of getting into a car, driving, they might be just like, you know, consistently worried that they might get into an accident. Um, I don't know, like every time I'm supposed to travel somewhere, I swear like a week or two before, there's some issue with like a plane. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that sparks my anxiety a lot, right? So the person who kind of stays, you know, internal, keeps this in, they might be hearing on the news about, you know, other car accidents. It might be in China. But they might be thinking, oh, see, this is why I don't want to go out anymore. It's because, you know, this might happen to me. So it really depends. It, re it depends on a lot of things. Um, it's, it's this combination of nature and nurture, right? Because we learn to cope based okay. on our experiences and their support system and their network and our past experiences. Okay. So, okay, yeah. Got you. So it's not necessarily the internal right yeah it's not clear cut like that it's positive if it's positive it's an environment that will encourage growth versus an environment right. that won't and right that could be okay good got you nice. right yeah some other um reasons would be that um some persons might get prescribed um medications for pain um or like anxiety and they eventually um might become addicted to those medications. So I don't know if this would be of interest to you, but I thought it was, it would be helpful maybe to talk about drug classifications um, because this might, this might kind of explain to why some people might become addicted as, as opposed to others. Um, so when we talk about medication, so actually the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, actually has schedules for drugs and it's, um, it's schedule one to five. And so these drugs are scheduled according to their risk for or their potential to be addictive or harmful. Um, so schedule one are things that have absolutely no medical use at all, like a physician would not prescribe this, but there's high potential for abuse like heroin, marijuana, ecstasy, drugs like that. Schedule mm -hmm. two drugs are things that you could actually be prescribed, and these have a high potential for abuse that could lead to um, like psychological and physical dependence. And they're, they're quite dangerous um, if not monitored and used appropriately. Um, so with the exception of um, illicit drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine, um, some prescribed medications like for pain, um, like uh, hydromorphone, hydrocodone, or Vicodin, 
those are medications that if you're not careful how you're taking them, um, it, it become, it's easy to become addicted to those. Medications for persons who are diagnosed with um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, um, like Adderall and Ritalin, those are medications that there's a, t there's a high risk for you, a high tendency or possibility that you could become addicted to those. Um, so for example, when I worked in residential substance use disorder treatment setting, we dispense the medication um, at prescribed times and dosage for their clients. But any medications that were classified as Schedule II had to be locked in like a safe and in a locked like cabinet. And we had to record when it was dispensed, how much, what time the person got it, so that we were in compliance um, with the you know, like DA requirements pretty much. And every time there was a change in shift, that person taking their new shift had to count their medication that their person in their shift before dispensed to be sure that you're not missing medication and things like that. So, so they're very controlled. Um, and then schedule three, four, and five, they don't have as high of a, of a risk. Um, so there are things like um, Tylenol that might have codeine in it, um, medications such as Xanax or Ativan, which is used for anxiety, um, Tramadol for pain, um, and like Robitussin, and medication for um, fibromyalgia and epilepsy. Um, so you find that um, prescribers might more want to prescribe something like tramadol instead of prescribing Vicodin because of that risk that, that you have um, for possibly developing an addiction um, to these substances. So again, if a person doesn't have good coping skills, right? Let's just say, let's just take that. Um, I'm not a person that copes very well and yet I'm prescribed um, lorazepam for my anxiety, I um, might decide to use my lorazepam more than is required, more than is needed, because it would help me to stay calm and relaxed so I could actually focus and I could actually, you know, go out into the community maybe and not have like an anxiety attack. Um, so instead of doing other things like going to exercise, watching what I eat, talking to a counselor, connecting with people in my community, I decide to use their medication because of how it good it makes me feel. And I don't, I don't quick, know if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's a quick thing too. It's that it's right. quick and it's reliable. So you know if you take it, you're likely to get... Exactly. Right. Exactly. And then you asked about... Um, like some biological stuff. So there, and I talked about this nature and nurture. So there are some, some biological factors as well. So there have been twin studies that, that look at um, genetics, like genetic factors in terms of understanding addiction. And um, an individual's risk um, is based on genetic relationship if they have someone else, a, a genetic relationship with someone else who has an addiction in their family. Um, so there's been some studies about that. Um, so, th so there's that on this side. And then there's also like environmental, right? So like peer pressure, um, you know, you're very stressed, you might have a traumatic experience, or you grow up in a household where that is what you've seen as the norm. 
or you just have access to these substances. So it, these aren't clear cut categories in terms of why some people become addicted and others don't. They might really interlap, overlap mm -hmm. with each other. Um, yeah. But these are just some things that have been identified as possible reasons um, why. And when I work with clients, I like to um, let them know that I know that you didn't get up one Sunday morning and just decided that you were going to use heroin and completely disrupt your life. There is something that that drug, that substance, the alcohol, their behaviors, there is something that that does for you. There is something that it's replacing, something that it's, it's nurturing or protecting you from. So it's about understanding that. So no one just wakes up and decides that they're going to, you know, do this to their life. Um, and it could be just a combination of all these things. Nice. Okay. So th that is amazing. So coping skills. Some maybe, you know, in, in your family history, understanding your family history and if yeah. there's any addiction there, just yeah. to get a greater sense of what your chances are. Right. Environmental. So who you're hanging right. around. Exactly. If you're on the immense stress, in a high stress job. Right. Um, those are some of the things that we need to be mindful of. And if we're prescribed certain medications, yeah. we have access to certain medication. Those are things to be mindful of and to, to take note of mm -hmm. in terms of yourself and maybe even family members. Right. So the last thing you mentioned was it sounded very compassionate. You being able to in a non in a non-judgmental way mm -hmm. reach your end where he or she is at and yeah. try to you know, understand what's going on. Yeah. Which is one of the things that professional counselors would do. It's not coming down on someone and saying, oh, right. my gosh, terrible. Right. It's trying to meet them where they're at, essentially. Right. Now, would you say that's something that family members struggle with in your experience? Mm -hmm. um, do you see that family members are very compassionate and, but still trying to get help? Or are mm -hmm. they either, you know, family members who enable mm -hmm. so they just allow them to continue their behavior? Right. Yeah. Happened, right. Um, or they just cut them off and they're yeah. like, forget you. You know, what have you seen based on your experience? Yeah, I've seen all of those things. Oh, wow. uh, <laughs> I've seen all of them. Um, so it's having a loved one who might be um, living with an addiction or who's living with an addiction could be a very overwhelming and frustrating experience for the individual and also for their family and, and their loved ones as well. Um, and a lot of times, well, not a lot of times, but sometimes family members don't, they don't understand what is happening with their loved one. And they might feel really helpless in their situation and not know what to do. So I always encourage family members to come in for sessions as well so that they could, I could provide them with that psychoeducation about what their loved one is experiencing. Of course, as long as their loved one get, grants consent for that to happen. Um, because it's, it's really important. Like when your loved one is receiving care or receiving treatment for an addiction, um, 
it, it's important for their family members and loved ones also to understand this process and what, pretty much what to expect um, because it's an adjustment on both ends. So family members, could, you know, I've seen family members who've been very supportive and they want to be very involved in their loved one's treatment and care. Um, I've seen family members who dropped off their loved ones and was like, goodbye, and like never hear from them again. They have no contact with their, their loved one. Um, and I've had family members who bring their, their loved ones or they, they know their loved ones are receiving treatment and they are like, mm, you know, but when they sell drugs and they get money, I profit from that too. Or this person needs me just as much as I need them. So a lot of enabling and codependency um, might come up. So, you know, you, you see it across all, all possibilities um, when it comes to, to families and how they deal with having a loved one who is living with an addiction. Wow, that, is, that must be interesting to experience yeah. <laughs> on every occasion. It is. It is. Now, addiction, this thing, it can take over you, it can take over your life. Mm -hmm. Are people likely to go and say, here, what, I'm accessing help on their own? Mm -hmm. Or does it usually come out of force for mm -hmm. something losing your job or losing your family that kind of thing i'm curious about that based on your experience of course mm -hmm. it might be different for other people right. but what have you noticed in terms of persons coming to access help is it mm -hmm. on their own free will or is it because you know it's last resort on some end it, it could be either of those Oh, it could be anything. Um, it, could be, wow. it could be anything. Um, I, I mean, we have had clients who, you know, they, they recognize that things aren't going well in their lives and they come in and they want to get help. Um, I've had clients who would come in and they would say things like, well, my husband thinks that I have a problem, so I'm here for him. Or, <laughs> I'm, yeah, or I'm here, my mom, she thinks I have their problem, so I'm going to just go through this treatment for her and she could leave me alone. Um, so it's like, they can't see, but other people yeah. keep telling them. So it's like, they want to keep them quiet. So they're like, I'll do this for them. And then they could just leave me alone. Um, and then you've had people who they're required, they're mandated to receive um, treatment. So I've worked with um, a lot of individuals who are also involved in department of correction. So they would have either probation or parole officer. Um, and sometimes coming to treatment is like an alternative to revocation or it's part of their um, department of corrections plan, like what they have with their probation officer. Um, I also used to do um, uh, OWI assessments. And so those persons would come in um, and have an assessment and might get to treatment because of that assessment. Um, some persons also uh, might be involved with um, like child protective services or the human services department and they may have children and because of their um, use um, they need to they're required to have treatment and so it's oh. kind of yeah a collaborative um, thing sometimes it's like they can't have their children with them until they finish this treatment and they have to finish it successfully. Um, and so there, there are a lot of stipulations that go along with that, but it could be anything, right? Um, that people, it's either they go on their own or someone asks them to go or they, um, 
you know, they, they, they don't have, a, they, they think they don't have a choice because yeah. someone told them they, they have to, they have to go there, some kind of consequence um, that goes along with it. Wow, nice. What advice would you give to persons who have family members who they suspect may mm-hmm. have an addiction or merely living with an addiction rather? Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to them? Yeah, so for their, for their family members, I think one of the things that in my experience has been um, difficult for family members to accept is that you cannot make that other person change. You could create the environment to support change, but that decision has to come from the individual. They have to say, okay, yeah, maybe I might have a problem. Let me check this out. You know, it's it's just like that saying, right? You could take a horse to the water, but you can't make it drink. So, yeah. Yeah. So you can't make a person change, but you can create an environment that supports change. Um, And so when you know or you find out or your loved one eventually discloses, um, you know, their their problem um, or their addiction to you, remember remember that they are very vulnerable. They might not even understand what is happening to them. And they might just need to know that you hear them out. Um, Sometimes it might not be that they tell you this because they want you to fix their situation for them. They might just need to have a listening ear and know that they will be supported. Um, So as difficult as it might be, it's their time to really be supportive. And sometimes it's helpful to just ask ask your loved one, you know, what do you need from me? How could I support you during this time? I hear that this is what's happening to you. I appreciate that you, you trust me and you're willing to be vulnerable and open up to me. What do you need from me? How could I help? Because it's really easy to go into that. Okay, I know I need to call this person. I need to call this person. <laughs> we need to get you to the hospital. We need to do this stuff. And that mightn't be what their person is ready for. Um, when we think about people receiving help for substance use disorders, you know, you, you need to think about if it's the right time for their person, if they're going to their right place, and if who they're going to see is their right person, if it's their right level of care, right? So whether it be that they're going into, it might just be a simple intervention that's happening at home, whether they go to outpatient services, they need to go to detox, they need to go to inpatient or residential. Um, so there are a lot of things to consider. So just asking your loved one, what do they need from you? If they don't know, be willing to say, you know what, we will figure this out together. Yes. It's also very difficult. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that first because I know that people struggle with that. When you Mm -hmm. you think you know the solution, you think you know the right right way. Parents, if you're listening, you may know that, right? You want Mm -hmm. your child to stop this behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating when they don't bite, when they don't accept what you're saying. But I want to underscore what Dr. Kalender is saying. Be mindful of your own anxiety and finding ways to cope with that and your own challenges that you're experiencing. But how can you come to this person and just, one, be grateful that they trust you with this information 
but that you're able to be held in that space with them and ask them as opposed to tell them, ask them, how, mm-hmm. how can I support you? What do you need? What are some of your challenges? What are you experiencing? Mm-hmm. Right. And that kind of thing. I love that. And, 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 and I would say too, it's, it's not their time to say so, things like, why can't you just stop? Or you should know better than that. Or that making sense? Why you would do something like that? You know? That's making sense. That's yeah. Caribbean. Right? That making sense? Mm-hmm. That making sense to you? Not yeah. that, you know, now isn't the time. Because let me tell you, if the person could just stop, they would. It's, it's just like persons who, it's similar, right? With persons who have... Um, mental health disorders, you know, someone's very depressed, right? Struggling with a lot of depression symptoms and they can't get out of bed, they can't shower. So it's easy for you who have the energy, who feel motivated, you could say, you know, why you can't just get out from bed? Trust me, if they could, they would. So if they could stop using or they could stop the online gambling or their sex addiction or their eating disorder, they would. But the thing is, because it's an addiction, they need help learning how it's like you have to retrain your brain for these things. You have to retrain your brain. And as we talk about the brain, um, you know, when you think about addiction from a disease model, right, you think about, you know, we talk about these behaviors that are chronic, they're complex, and they affect healthy brain and body function right? And there are changes in functioning and levels of like neurotransmitters, like dopamine, serotonin, glutamate, right? So certain drugs activate these pathways in their brain and they release more dopamine. So that's, that's your feel good trans- neurotransmitter. And when you have this sudden spike in their dopamine, you get this feeling of euphoria. It is an intensely pleasurable feeling, right? And this is one of the things with um, developing an addiction is that you always try to get that feeling every time. It's kind of what they call chasing the high, right? You want that intense pleasurable feeling over and over and over again. Um, And then when you think about serotonin, serotonin is responsible for things like you know, how we sleep and our senses. So when you use substances, you disrupt the normal and healthy functioning of serotonin in your body. Um, You know, and these individuals, they might be very impulsive. They might have mood disorders. They might be very aggressive. And unfortunately, sometimes it leads to suicidal thoughts. Um, And then you have glutamate, which is responsible or has a role in learning and memory. Um, So when when individuals experience these cravings and their reinforcement of this substance or this thing, it has to do with what happens to their glutamate. So that's that's why I'm saying like it's not if they could stop, if they could just point to their brain and say, hey, guys, neurotransmitters, settle down. No more. then they could do it, but they can't. <laughs> so they need help with learning how to, you have to retrain your brain. Um, so that's one of the things that makes it a little more difficult to just stop, right? To just, just stop. Yeah, it's definitely educating yourself on 
what this thing really is and and understanding that right. it's not you know as you said people don't just wake up on a Sunday morning and say hey I want to be addicted exactly and so waking up on Monday morning and saying <laughs> right hey, might right. be not very realistic for most persons right and I would say that family members also um, need to be patient in this process so I have had clients who I have seen over and over and over and over again. It's like you're seeing them for the seventh time. They come in, they receive their treatment. They do really well for a period of time, you know, post-treatment. They get into their recovery. They're trying to live a life of sobriety and then they have a relapse. And then they, they spiral downward and then they're back again over and over and over. And it could be very frustrating because you might be saying to yourself, did this person not learn like their last time? Like their last time you overdosed. Did you not learn from that? So it's, it's about being really patient. So their first time they go to seek help might not be their time that fixes everything. That's good to know. They might have to re-experience this and re-experience this until they really hit what, what is in recovery terms of like rock bottom, right? It's like they have that one experience that really shakes them up and they decide, okay, I, I cannot do this anymore. And that for some people takes 10 times. Some people it's twice. Some people they get it really well on their first try. Um, but just be mindful of that. Being mindful of that, being really supportive and family members would need to learn how to redefine their boundaries with loved ones. Be real careful of enabling behaviors and seek out your own support, as you mentioned, and counseling to deal with your own distress as well. Um, because one person's distress in a family affects their whole unit, right? It's a systemic yes. issue. It affects their whole unit. So then you need to also find ways to nurture yourself, your own well-being, taking care of your own emotional safety, and also being okay with asking questions about things you don't know about addiction, seeking out that information so that you understand better what is happening to your loved one, and you could learn about what might be some of their warning signs to look out for and some relapse, you know, like what might be triggering relapse? What are some warning signs? Because it might be different for different people, right? A, a trigger for me might not be a trigger for you. So it's about, about learning those things about your loved one and really being willing to be um, humble and open to that and being okay with you as their loved one, not having all the answers because you won't. Wow, that might be tough for some people. Mm -hmm. Might be tough, especially someone tough. who's in a parental role. Yes. Know? Like, I don't have the answers. What did I do wrong? Is yes. Yourself? Yes. Wondering what's happening. But as Dr. Kalinda said, seek your own help. Yeah. To work through your own distress mm -hmm. and making sure that you understand that boundaries are important, that you can yeah. love your loved one. Oh, absolutely. Need those boundaries in place to help with that enabling environment. Exactly. That was touched on earlier. It's, it's exactly. important. And continue to educate, 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 educate yourself on what's taking place versus trying to 
you know, lash out or, mm-hmm. or um, not regulate your emotions. Right. So any other things that you'd like to share with us? Anything that I didn't ask about? Anything mm-hmm. that you didn't get to mention? That yeah. could be really helpful for persons who want to learn more about addiction. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to go back to just really stating and emphasizing how much of an adjustment this is for you and your loved one. So for their family and for their loved one, um, because you trust may have been broken. There might, might have been lies, deception, um, infidelity, um, abandoning, you know, like your home, your, your children, your partners. Um, so when their person, when their loved one then goes to seek help, when they need to return home, there needs to be something or someone that helps to bridge that. Um, and so, as I mentioned, I always encourage family members to come in for a couple of sessions before my client discharges because their family members do need to learn about what this quote unquote new life is like for this, their loved one and what might be some things that they might need from them. But their loved one also needs to understand how their family how their family members are dealing and coping with this. And so it's almost like coming up with a compromise, right? Of of what what happens from here. I've had family sessions where um, family members come and in session they set out boundaries and almost like a contract for when their person comes back home. It's like if you do if I see this, 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 and this we're coming back to this treatment center. If I see this, you, you know what I mean? Um, and, and respecting that your loved one may not yet feel safe enough to come to you if they're experiencing like a craving or they're being triggered. Um, they might not yet feel safe because one, they might be thinking about how much distress they've already put their loved ones through or two they just they might think that they're going to get into so much trouble if they come and they say something so uh depending on on your uh, framework um i always encourage my clients to connect with a 12-step um self-help support group when they're out of treatment and to get themselves a sponsor because your sponsor is someone who's been through this experience who understands what it's like who may have had several relapses themselves and really, you know, went through it until they're at a point where they could support somebody else, they might feel way more comfortable texting their sponsor to tell them about their craving and not telling you their loved one. Don't take that personal. Yeah, okay. A sponsor and 12 step could be yeah. mm-hmm. There are some people that don't buy into 12 step um, groups because they like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous because they see it as being aligned with religion. It's not, but that's a whole different podcast. Um, <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> so that doesn't, um, some people may not align with that, but whatever it is, get someone who you could call on yeah, anytime, any day who would listen without judgment yeah so we need support yes we need support we need support this is not something to this is not a road to walk on 
by yourself. I mean, no. granted, it's an individual walk, so you will need to make your own decisions. Right. But we cannot underestimate the importance of support. No. And the type of people around us, they can either help us or make it more difficult for us mm-hmm. to, to thrive. Right. Wow. Right. And I just love how you're underscoring the importance of the family as well. And it's a unit and mm-hmm. what happens to one can affect all. And in different ways, some people oh, yeah. may respond differently, but it doesn't mean that it's not something significant. Right. Wow. Right. If, 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 you're, um, if you haven't seen the movie, A Beautiful Boy, um, I think that that's a good movie to watch. It, it really, I think it does a really good job of showing like how parents, you know, they try and they try and they think they're helping their child or their loved one. Um, and really their loved one, they just can't seem to find their way until they have that one experience where they are like, okay, this, this is it. Like I really need to change. Um, so a beautiful boy, a beautiful boy. Um, keep, keep tissues handy. You, you might cry. Um, (laughs) and I would say that if, um, if, if you're watching it and you know, you yourself may have, you know, um, experienced a, um, traumatic experience, uh, uh, like been through like substance use treatment or so, um, you know, just, just kind of watch it with some, some caution. Wait, I'm trying to think if it's a beautiful boy. It's on Amazon, um, prime. It's about the chefs. Um, uh, this guy with his son. Yeah. It's called beautiful boy. That's what it is. It's a, uh, it's actually, I think it's on Amazon prime. I don't know if it's on, on Netflix. Yeah. I don't know if it's on Netflix, but I know for sure it's on Amazon prime. Um, or if it's a, if it's a, like a DVD that you could rent or so, but it's, um, it was a very touching, close to realistic um, story. Wow, I'll need to check that out. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for the recommendation. Yeah. And as Dr. Kalender said, if you were very close to someone who experienced substance abuse or you went through treatment mm-hmm. yourself, just be cautious. Yeah, just, yeah, just be cautious about Right, yeah. Yeah. So, wow, this, this was very insightful <laughs> from the beginning of just discussing what addiction is and how, you know, it's, if your whole world is crumbling down if, and, mm-hmm. and you're still not able to stay away from this thing or this substance, then it's a good indication that you might be experiencing addiction mm-hmm. and uh, some of the, the things or the aspects of our lives that can predispose us to right. or more likely for us to be addicted and then also some advice for family members and what they can do if they if they're living this right mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. So thank you so much for coming in you're very welcome <laughs> and sharing your wisdom to us <laughs> i am sure i'm gonna be getting messages so don't be <laughs> if i message you saying okay maybe <laughs> <laughs> it was very insightful and it's something that you know if we look really hard we've mm-hmm. probably all had to deal with or experience or see oh, yeah. it in our own field or work whether it's at work like yeah. we, you know, even though we're not counselors or that kind of thing but the workplace we may experience that at family members in our mm-hmm. village right on the tv or, or or shows it's something that we've all or most of us we're exposed to so it's good right. to know it's yeah good to know. yeah 
And there's a lot of cultural, um, I, I think that that's one thing that I want to mention as well. There are a lot of cultural factors um, or considerations with addiction as well, because um, drinking a lot might look different in one culture than it would in another one. So I think it's important for me to say that too, that taking all of this into context in terms of culture, whether that's your you know, main culture or subculture within your home or whatever that might be. So taking that into consideration um, as well as you look at um, addictions and addictive behavior. Ah, and you know, as you said that, that's a very good point that you raised. As you said that, um, pe persons who may be considering getting married, persons mm -hmm. who may be considering dating, something I want to share as well, it's, it's good to find out about your partner's history yes and your own in terms of if a grandfather an uncle right. or someone maybe had uh, lived with addiction or something like that it's good to, it's good to be mindful of and to note to see what you're getting yourself into so mm -hmm. be mindful of cultural differences as dr yeah. kalina said and for persons who may be considering dating just be open just understand what you're getting yourself into. yeah a genogram is a really nice way to do that yeah. with persons right it's like you know you could use that genogram to trace different things you know what might be you know work history in your family or you know, mental health issues in your family um you know or substance use disorders anything i mean a genogram is a really easy somewhat fun way to do that yes with somewhat fun, somewhat fun. <laughs> somewhat. <laughs> you could yeah, make it fun but you know it's that it's it's a, it's a kind of hands-on um very visual way to kind of trace that exactly maybe one day i'll share that on my page yeah this follow that's a good idea that's yeah thanks yeah. for that and it was a pleasure having you yes thanks again for tuning in to asking for myself with dr crystal benjamin please do not hesitate to reach out to us if there's a topic you'd like for us to share or like for me to share on this platform or if you have any questions about this right i would love to hear from you have a wonderful time take care until next time That brings us to the end of another episode of Asking for Myself with Dr. Crystal Benjamin. Hey, thank you for listening and we would love to hear from you. So on your way out, please leave us a comment. Cheers.